Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. It's ancient history today. Alina, who have you got and found for us today? We've got Claire Holleran, who is a classicist and senior lecturer at Exeter University. She specialises in Roman social and economic history, and she's also a published author. Her most recent publication is A Companion to the City of Rome. Welcome, Claire. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, this is brilliant, because we are actually going to talk about Rome, as in the city, which is my favourite city in the whole world. Um, and I can tell Alina wrote these questions, because the first question is, what kind of shops and markets would she find in ancient Rome if she was there? <laughs> bakery, bakery, bakery. <laughs> was there cake, Alina wants to know. There were, there were definitely, definitely lots of bakeries um, and there were definitely lots of shops in, in ancient Rome as well as modern Rome. Um, I can tell you a little bit about shopping in modern Rome as well, but um, I know a lot more about shopping in ancient Rome. So you've got a huge variety of, of shops um, from what we call fixed shops. So, you know, small units, which we know um, very often spilled out over their thresholds onto the street. So causing lots of obstructions. Um, so, you know, if you're walking around the streets, you've got to negotiate your way around barrels of wine and barbers and you know butchers shops with things hanging up outside and so on oh that sounds like uganda now they have like a little tiny shop but it's all about the front and what's out the front and absolutely yeah that area in front of the the shop is a, is a big selling space a big way of advertising what you've got inside as well mm. but a lot of it takes place outside i mean we know that because um the emperor Domitian apparently enacted legislation to say that shops should stay within their thresholds, but there's repeated attempts at that legislation, which usually suggests that, you know, it's not working. Um, so the norm is for everything to be outside on the street. And I think adding to that, you've got a lot of street sellers and, and hawkers, um, you know, got plenty of literary evidence for people going around hawking goods um, in the streets and, you know, in places like bathhouses. So anywhere that you would get a concentration of hungry people, um you've got hawkers selling food and drink and so on so bathhouses in Seneca in the first century Seneca a Roman philosopher talks about living above a, a bathhouse in Rome and you know the noise of that I can hear um people playing ball games people in the baths people screaming because they're having their hair plucked but on top of that he can also hear people selling sausages and um drink and so on to people at the bar um, yeah, we also have um, street sellers, hawkers at the games. Um, you know, we've got a painting from 
Pompeii, which depicts a it was a big riot that took place in, in the amphitheatre in Pompeii in um, 59 CE. So people from a neighbouring town came um, for, for some games and there was a big riot between the people from the two towns. And there's a painting of this from Pompeii, but you can see there's quite what is quite clearly the Pompeian amphitheatre. It's quite distinctive. It's got these steps that go up on the outside. So there's a painting of that. But in the foreground, you can see lots and lots of stalls. Um, so some kind of wooden booths, but also people who've just strung up um, cloth between trees. So to, to provide some shade, but also to mark out a sales area. And actually, when that was first excavated, there were there were painted notices on the outside of the amphitheatre saying, you know, this is where I can sell. And I've got permission from the edile, so from the local magistrates to, to trade here. So there was some attempt at, at kind of regulating those street sellers as well. You've also got markets. Um, so periodic markets, but also permanent market buildings. I mean, the big one in Rome would be the Macellum, which was kind of high status market, really. This is your, your kind of waitrose of the day. If you're, if you're yeah. wealthy <laughs> in Rome, this is where you go to buy expensive meat and, and particularly fish. Um, so the Macellum is very much associated in our sources with the sale of um, expensive fish, um red mullet in particular big single fish red mullet were particularly prized um and to gauge it's hard to gauge the price of these kind of things so very often they were sold by auction um and there's a certain amount of display and showing off that goes into this um and they went for really high prices so much so that they had bankers in the mccallum extending short-term credit to buyers because you know you don't know how much this mullet is going to go for so you don't know how much money you need to have with you so there are bankers there who will extend credit and we have um from rome we have a tombstone that survives of an argentarius a banker who was based in the mckellen magnum which is mm. the the great the great uh, market built by nero um in the first century and that shows an image of an auction taking place so you've got the auctioneer in the center on a little platform and he's holding a fish in one hand and writing tablets in the other. And then he's flanked on either side by two men who are holding um, big baskets with, with fish in them. So there's a real variety of types of retail going on in Rome. I love the uh, idea that you can't really like trying to value an item is really difficult because would you have had people just paying a fortune for a fish because they can to show off rather than that being what its monetary value is in Rome? Absolutely. There's a lot of this, particularly in the Macellum, which is about kind of conspicuous consumption and showing off how much money and wealth you have. Um, you see that particularly with these elite dinner parties that, you know, you want to serve something expensive, something exotic, something unusual. I mean, we know there's a, a man called Hortensius who was the first to serve peacock at a banquet in Rome. You know, that's gone down in our literary sources because that was unusual. That's the kind of thing you wanted to do. You wanted to make a statement about your wealth. I like this life in Rome. It sounds pretty exciting and bustling and just different. Yeah, certainly very, very bustling, very busy. I mean, if we think about the streets in Rome, it must have been, I don't know, like Oxford Street on a Saturday afternoon before Christmas. There's so many people living in this city, about a million, and it's not very big, like the size of ancient Rome. It can't go out and out and out like a, like a modern city can. It's pretty densely populated in the centre um so you know there'll be crowds of people in the streets we have Just one of our shuddering at the concept of oxford street on a saturday before <laughs> once pre-covid of course yeah, yeah pre-covid 
you can sort of cast your mind back to what it used to be like um what did this bidding process look like then i'm guessing the rich people would they have wanted to shout about how much money they had themselves or did they have a slave do it um a bit of both so we know that some of our literary sources talk about the elite themselves going to the to the mckellum um but it's hard to know if that's um kind of trying to insult them by saying that they're hanging around the mckellum um you know that they are because there is this trope that although all of this goes on there is this trope that luxury is is bad you know i mean we think of luxury everything's luxury isn't it everything's luxury and executive and it's a good thing but actually to accuse somebody of um being into luxury and that kind of lifestyle was it was an insult in in the roman world you know you should be um austere you should be just serving turnips from your farm or whatever um you know they're big on serving cabbage but really, people are not doing that. People are serving these um, expensive, exotic items. Um, so, yeah, who is actually doing the shopping is, is difficult to know. Certainly, you are sending out your enslaved people to do a lot of this on your behalf. Um, but, you know, most people are doing their, doing their own shopping and, and women as well. Um, so we have paintings from Pompeii, which show um, one of them shows a market scene. And amongst the most of the sellers in that one are men. Um, but actually, we do know that women were retailers as well. Women were involved in selling. Um, but there's, a, there's women there as well as customers. So women are um, buying and selling themselves. It's not something that they send people out to do. But maybe not elite women. Again, in our literary sources, there are stories of um, kind of sellers, peddlers going to the houses of um, wealthy elite women in order to sell to them there. and you get this kind of literary figure of the the peddler who's turning up at the doorsteps of these elite women. And, um, you know, both the peddler and the woman only really have one thing on their minds and um, it's not retail. Um, so you do get this idea that the peddler is a kind of sexual threat. If you've left your wife at home on, on her own, um, you know, watch out for the seller coming round. Or a really bad porno, Roman style. Yeah, basically. The peddler yeah. knocks at yeah. the door. <laughs> I mean, Ovid, one of our first century love poets, he says, you know, it's really unlucky if you're at your girlfriend's house and a seller calls around because, you know, inevitably she'll want to buy something because, you know, that's what women are like. Um, and even if you say you have no money, well, the seller will just offer you credit, um, which is interesting. because we do, I think, get these layers of credit networks um, that are underpinning a lot of the retail trade in Rome. To who actually goes shopping um in rome we've already talked about women maybe maybe not necessarily elite women but what other kind of people would you find shopping in ancient rome um i mean most people would i say be doing their doing their own shopping um i mean tacitus who's one of our historians he says that people in rome tended to buy everything on a daily basis so you know if you're poorer you would probably be buying your your food on a on a daily basis because you know you're probably a day laborer you are living on a hand-to-mouth day-to-day basis so every day you would go out and buy you know your loaf of bread or whatever it was that you needed for for that day um there's lots of different layers of retail catering to different people with different levels of wealth um so you know the elite may be going to the mckellum but you've also got areas of the city of rome that are dedicated to to other types of luxury trade um so you know in the in the late republic so in the, the kind of later first century bce the elite tended to live on the lower slopes of the palatine hill in rome and the area between the palatine hill and the um, forum which was the political center where they 
it worked, if you will. There's an area in between called the Via Sacra, and we know that in that period that was lined with jewellery shops because, um, well, this is an expensive area, so you're going to get high-end shops because property prices are high, rent would be high, but also you've got those elite people in that area, so you've got a kind of captive audience, as it were. Um, so you've got those jewellery shops there. Uh, we've got, we hear about pearl dealers who are based there. Um, there's a woman who apparently would embroider gold thread on clothes. We've got an urn that commemorates her, and she was based there on the Via Sacra. So you've got those luxury areas, as it were. Um, bookshops also in that area. And there's a street called the Vicus Tuscus, which is between the Palatine and the Capitoline Hill. And that also is very much associated with the trade of expensive goods you know things like silks um perfumes ointments incense that kind of thing is all based around there so you've got those kind of high-end shops in the very center i think anything that's selling everyday goods um so bakers um neighborhood bars um barbers all those kind of things will be found throughout the city they don't tend to cluster together um but anything you buy occasionally things like high-end jewelry goods but also clothes those kind of things, those sellers tend to cluster together so that, um, you know, shoppers know where to go for something they buy only occasionally. As a Londoner, I'm really interested, and also the granddaughter of a market trader, really interested in the hawkers. So these um, in London, that would be like someone would, I don't know, a boat would come in with shellfish, they'd fill a basket, buy a basket and go off and sell it until it was empty. And that's their work done for the day. And they've got that going on in Rome as well. Absolutely. I think it works in a very similar way that you've got goods coming into this city all the time. They're coming along the river, they're coming in at the gates of the city if it's produce that's produced locally. And yeah, you go and see what's available on that day. And yeah, you take a basket. We've got an image, uh, again, a tombstone of of a hawker who's got a basket of apples around his neck. You go and fill it up, you walk around the streets, you sell it. And yeah, I think when you've sold your stuff, you, you finish for the day. So yeah, that's definitely that, that hand-to-mouth existence, isn't it? Whereby that feeds you that day and you need to get up and do it again tomorrow. Yeah, absolutely. There's no, I mean, people aren't saving money. They aren't necessarily going beyond this. But it's a very, um, I mean, we think of ancient Rome, particularly at its height when it was at its biggest, which is the roughly the, the first century BCE and into the first two centuries um, CE. It's very much a city of migrants. So you've got people coming in from all over the place into Rome and they don't necessarily have any particular skills. They don't really have any capital necessarily. And street trading is something that you can do even just on a short term basis to, to get by. If you've got enough money to buy stock for a day um, and you've got enough numeracy skills to, 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 to get by selling, then that's probably what a lot of people are doing um, on, on a day to day basis. If you can't get work as a as a day labourer unloading at the port, unloading at the docks. Um, the other thing to do is, is to sell goods. And of course, Self-sufficiency to it, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there is, there is some level of state aid in Rome, but those kind of people would not be eligible for it. So you might have heard of the, the grain distributions. Um, so a certain number of citizens in Rome, and it was only citizens, got free grain so once once a month they would get a big bag of free grain um but it was based very much on status not need so those kind of people who were coming in from outside they wouldn't necessarily be citizens they wouldn't have access to this kind of um state-sponsored aid i like that because um if i'm not mistaken in pompeii on uh, nevelea's grave 
you can see her husband handing out grain to the local citizens of Pompeii. Yes, you get it in um, in other local areas as well. So they kind of model themselves on what's going on in Rome. There's another painting from Pompeii of what looks to be a magistrate distributing loads of bread. Um, I forget the guy's name now, but it's a similar kind of idea. And it's part of, um, again, it's not really about need. It's about status and it's something that politicians do. So the emperor is doing that on a big scale in, in Rome. Um, and you've got it happening with local magistrates across Italy. And in other areas, because we know it was going on um, in Oxyrhynchus in um, in Egypt as well. So it's not just in Italy. So the next question, I'm just, I have to laugh at this next question, because um, as an archaeology student, you know, the arrogance of those archaeology students. When we first went to Pompeii back in the day and we were learning about, you know, shops and bakeries and things like that we would walk around and go, oh, you know, that's a shop, that's a bakery, that's a whatever it was, all because of something very specific. Tell us, how can you identify a shop from a house or a bakery and where would you find them? Ah, yes. So this is very much about the entranceway. So you would recognise a shop. If you go to Pompeii, um, you'll see lots of these big rectilinear rooms that open directly onto the street um, and their, their frontage is entirely open but you know that they were some kind of commercial establishment because you can see if you look at their threshold, it's got a big groove that goes along it and shutters would have been placed in that to close it. And then when it was open in the day, the shutters would have been completely removed um, and you've got this big open frontage. So you're looking for a grooved threshold if you want to identify a, a shop. There's actually at Pompeii, there's a, you know how they make the, the plaster casts of bodies by pouring into by pouring um, plaster of Paris into the kind of cavity left by um, by bodies in Pompeii. Well, they did the same thing with um, wooden things at one time. So there is an example of a of an actual shuttered door which has been made in plaster. So the the imprint was there. They filled it with plaster of Paris, and then they've got the the shuttered door. So you can see um, what it looked like. So it has these basically. Um, uh, big planks of wood next to each other and then there's a little night door in it so when it was locked up at night you would be able to get in and out of the of the shop because probably people lived in these spaces as well I mean the other thing you'll see if you look at those places when you go around Pompeii or Ostia or anywhere like that is that if you look halfway up the wall you'll see holes in the wall and they would have had beams in them and there would have been a mezzanine floor, like a wooden mezzanine floor with um, a ladder up to it, which could have been for storage, but possibly also a kind of bed deck for, you know, the shopkeeper who lived and worked on those premises. I want to know if there was any kind of uh, restriction. So like, you know, when you go into an ancient Roman city, so you've got it at Pompeii, haven't you? You've got certain areas where the streets are lined with tombs and stuff could you just go and do business anywhere could as a hawker or a general trader could you go anywhere and flog your stuff or were there some kind of rules about a commercial area and a residential area not really um we don't kind of get that idea of commercial or industrial or residential zoning that we get in modern cities everything's kind of mixed up together i mean again at pompeii you can see these really elaborate elite houses but they've still got shops or bars in there in the front of them um, so either side of their main entrance they've got commercial establishments um, and some of them you know would have been pretty smelly places doing manufacturing and so on so there isn't really that kind of zoning when I mean, there's some um 
there's some evidence at Pompeii that they are looking to regulate street traders because, I mean, one of the wonderful things about Pompeii is we get evidence that we wouldn't see elsewhere. So we have things like painted, um, you know, what we call dipinti on the walls. So as I said earlier, there's one outside the, there's, there's several outside the amphitheatre saying that certain people were allowed to trade there by permission of the Ediles. And there's a couple of other ones um, relating to the sale of sacrificial cakes near the Temple of Venus in the centre of Pompeii. So there is some evidence that there's an attempt to regulate more um, permanent street stores, if you will. But I suspect if you're hawking, if you've got a basket and you're on the move, it's really difficult to regulate that kind of thing. I mean, you've seen it in Rome now. Never yeah. mind. Said, you know, <laughs> just thinking there. of the guys dressed as gladiators wandering around trying to extort yeah. yeah. well, there's a police force there now. There was no police force really in, in ancient Rome. So just enforcing it is very difficult. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So what kind of things would be trade? I mean, we touched on a couple of these things already. The big thing, as you would expect, is is food. Um, the grain supply of Rome is huge business because, you know, bread is the staple of everyone's diet in the city. Um, and you've got grain coming principally from, from Egypt, from North Africa, um, coming into the city of Rome. I mean, Rome, because it's such a big city. I mean, if we think of it as a million people, London didn't reach that until about 1800. So it's huge for a pre-industrial context. This is massive. It outgrows its hinterland really quickly in that it can't be supplied by the immediate area surrounding it. So it has to import grain over really long distances. Um, so grain is the, the big one and bakeries would have been found throughout the city, surely. Um, you know, and you would go to your local neighbourhood baker, I imagine. Um, olive oil is the, the other massive thing that's imported. Um, Olive oil, of course, they use for food, but also for lighting. So oil lamps are lit with olive oil, um, which I guess seems I didn't know they used olive oil for that. Yeah, for some of them. Yeah, seems quite extravagant, doesn't it, when you think about yeah. it? <laughs> I'm thinking um, now when you pay like £4 a bottle for yeah, it, exactly. I'm just going to burn it because I can. It was used in medicine as well. Um, and it was used, of course, famously for, for washing in the Roman baths. You know, you'd cover yourself in olive oil and then scrape it off. Um, so olive oil was a massive thing. I don't know if you've ever seen um, Monte Testaccio in Rome. That is basically an artificial hill, which is made up of shards of what we call amphorae, which are kind of clay containers that olive oil was transported in. That's made up entirely of shards of olive oil amphorae, principally from Spain. It's about 85% Spanish and 15% North African. 
Um, and that's a substantial hill if you go to Rome today. If you, you can't get on it now, unfortunately. You used to be able to walk up it. Um, but if you ever get the chance to walk up it, it is just walking on a, on a rubbish dump. So there's the scale of what's coming in is, is massive. Yeah, and they can afford to just chuck it all like that. Generally, Montezuma statue is a bit of a weird anomaly because generally they would reuse amphorae. So you see them in buildings or, you know, infill for, for buildings and so on. So it seems for some reason they didn't do it there, whether it was because, um, I don't know, the oil seeped into the, the clay and made it smell rancid or, or whatever. We don't really know why they didn't reuse those ones, but it's very carefully organised. It's not just, they don't just chuck them on there. They've carefully terraced them to make this. It's quite a um, stable hill, if you will. You know, it's one of the biggest hills in Rome now. Think of Rome as um, the city of hills, but a lot of them have kind of been built up over the years. But that's one of the ones that's still there. Can I ask, so the Roman Empire is massive, but in terms of Rome itself, how far away is, is stuff coming from, goods coming from on a regular basis? Most things um, are traded fairly locally. I mean, if it's fresh food, it, it kind of has to come from the hinterland. You know, you've got no refrigerated transport. Um, so most things that are consumed are coming in locally, even things like wine. I mean, a lot of that was produced locally and brought in in skins. So it's archaeologically invisible, but that seems to be the most likely explanation. I mean, wine is coming from all over, but that's your more expensive vintages that, you know, the elites would drink the kind of rough stuff that you're getting in your local bar is probably produced pretty close to Rome, just brought in in these animal skins. Um, but if we're talking luxury goods, they're coming in from all over. I mean, we know Rome is trading as far afield as, as India, um, but right across the Mediterranean. And they're bringing in things like um, pepper and spices from, um, from Egypt and from the, the Roman province of, of Arabia. Um, you know, there's a big warehouse in the centre of Rome called the Aurea Piperataria, which is um, kind of pepper warehouse. So that's where you would have gone for, for peppers and spices and so on. So stuff is coming from, from all over. And, you know, our, our literary sources make a big thing that you can get anything you want in Rome. It's a kind of it's a city that's built on its empire and it, it prides itself in bringing in everything that it can from across that empire, be it building materials. I mean, you probably know all the different colours of marble that you can see in Rome. Mm -hmm. That is a statement of power. That's a statement that we can bring marble from wherever. If you want green marble, we can get it for you because we've got this massive empire. OK, so apart from shops, markets, street traders, bakeries, what else can you find on the streets of Rome? Streets of Rome, I think, would have been incredibly busy. Um, partly, you know, because of the climate of Rome, but also a lot of people aren't living in the best conditions. Um, would it have been like when we talk about medieval London and we like people just chucking their waste into a gutter in the middle of the street and stuff like that? Is it similar or is it different? It's similar in some ways. I mean, if we think when we think of Roman cities, we tend to think, oh, they had really good sanitation and they had sewers and all the rest of it, and Rome did have a massive sewer called the Cloaca Maxima, the, the, the Great Drain. But really, that's about taking flood water and excess water out of the city. It's not necessarily about taking human waste out of the city. Um, a lot of people are, you know, using chamber pots and throwing it out the window, as we would see in a medieval city. You know, our legal sources talk about that. Um, you know, be careful of getting hit on the head by a chamber pot. Um, and presumably, the contents are coming out all the time. So... Although we think of Rome as, as quite a clean city, in many ways, yeah, it would have been like that. And people are, again, it has a good water supply, 
there are aqueducts bringing water in from all over. So it does have a good water supply, but most people wouldn't have access to a private tap, as it were. So they would get their water from um, a basin somewhere on the street corner. So again, you've got that kind of contamination that happens. But also it means that those neighbourhood basins become a centre for kind of local socialising and, and gossip and so on. So you've got these little neighbourhood shrines on the corners, you've got these basins. So again, it's quite a busy scene if we think of the Roman street. I mean, there's a there's a great case in one of our legal sources that says... Um, Whose fault is it if you're being shaved in the street and somebody nearby is playing a ball game and the ball hits the barber's arm and he slits your throat? Whose fault is that? Is it your fault? <laughs> is that a hypothetical or did it happen? We never quite know. So the, the legal sources, some of them are based on real events and sometimes they're just thinking up different scenarios and, you know, what's the, it's a kind of a game of whose liability would it be? Is it, is it yeah. stupid enough to be there? Is it the, the, the barber? Is it the person who threw the ball? It's your fault for being stupid enough to have your head or your face being shaved in a street with loads of people where anybody can look you. Your fault. That, well, that's my opinion. You're harsh, man. It's, it's bringing that, that makes me think of, what about uh, street crime? Things like muggings and stuff. How bad was Rome for that? Um, bad, I think. You know, um, there's very little in the way of a police force in Rome. Um, most of it is what we call self-help so you know you have to look after yourself so things like crime um yeah mugging street crime they, they must have been rife i mean just thinking about shops again in our in our legal sources someone talks about not only people stealing things from you know if you've got your shop spilling out into the streets you know security is an issue it's not people just stealing your stock it's stealing the light that you put up to keep your so that people can see what's in your shop so you know there's a lot of theft going on this is, I've got so many questions. This is brilliant. So I just, it sounds like you said, it's going to be hugely busy, isn't it? And yeah. just a complete assault on the senses by the sounds of it to go walking in Rome. Yeah. I mean, if you look at some of our, there's a guy called Juvenal, um, who was a satirist in kind of later first century Rome. And he talks about the experience of walking through the streets of Rome. And of course he's a satirist, so he's exaggerating, but for it to be funny, there's got to be a kind of kernel of truth in it. And he talks about, you know, on one side, you've got um, the soldier with his hobnail boots who's stamping on your foot. And on the other side, you've got somebody, because some people will be carried in, in litters. Um, so almost like a kind of sedan chair over people's heads. Oh, you've got this the would be Elena. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I would probably be one of the poorest people in Rome. I would be lucky to have one of those. In your head, you'd be carried everywhere on a litter. And look fabulous wearing awesome clothes. To be, do you know what? If I was to live in Rome, I'd probably like to live not so much of a life of luxury because I wouldn't want to be a woman in that. Unless I was a man, I really wouldn't be a woman. I want to be a woman at that time. No, I think that's often the question, isn't it? Who would you be? I remember some students asking me who would it be. I was like, well, I probably wouldn't be a woman. I'd um, definitely change gender for, for this one. But yeah, they're... I agree. Unless you were like someone like Eumachia. If I was Dumakia, then I'll be happy. Yeah, I mean, Roman women, as you say, they can have um, positions of um, kind of political influence in that sense. They can be wealthy in their own right. They can inherit um, wealth. And we do get women like Eumachia um, who are involved in public life. But just to yeah, think about the streets, um, things like the litters, you know, they're going over your heads. You've got the, the poles that might hit you on the head. Um, Juvenile's also talking about 
there's a lot of building work goes on in Rome and actually most carts, most wheel traffic is banned from the centre of Rome during the day because it's just too busy. But building traffic is exempt. So he talks about, you know, you've got a runaway cart that could crush you and kill you. And we do have um, some tombstones that talk about that kind of thing happening in, in reality. So, you know, these streets are incredibly, incredibly busy. I'm pretty dirty, just to go back to what you said. Um, there's a great story in Suetonius about the Emperor Vespasian that when Vespasian was younger, a stray dog came and brought a human hand and dropped it under his chair. And that's just a kind of a side. So no, the comment is just about the fact that that meant he was going to be future ruler. It's not the fact that you've got a stray dog scavenging human bones in the street. So there must be, you know, a lot of dirt and all sorts of things in, in Rome. I think my favourite place in Rome, and I don't know if it's come up in any research, you know now it's a cat sanctuary. So you go over and you look down and um, there's an old Roman building sort of beneath street level now and they use it, they put all food out for all the stray cats and everything. And if you go down there in the evening, all the cats are kind of lying around. It's very cute if you're a cat person. Does that ever come up in any of the sources? Obviously not as a cat sanctuary, but I'm wondering what the building was before. The Lago Argentina, I think, is probably the one you're referring to. Mm. Um, yeah, it's it's a series of um, Republican temples that you've got there. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, which is, it's not far from where Caesar was probably assassinated. So it's just near the, um, where Pompey's theatre was as well. So that's kind of around the area where Caesar would have been killed. This has been brilliant. Can I ask you one more thing before we go? You know, you're talking about sort of legal sources and things like that, mm-hmm. and like snapshots in history. Have you had any famous characters of like Rome life come down to you through these sources where we know of this one person and a crazy incident or uh, a character that was a hawker in Rome or whatever through like a random collection of sources and they've appeared in them? Not that I can think of offhand. I mean, one of the things about our sources with people like hawkers is that they tend to appear kind of in the background of literary sources. They're, they're giving a bit of um, a bit of local colour, if you will, to the story that's going on. They're never the, the principal part of the story. They're just kind of there in the background. Very often pejorative um, references to them as well. Um, you know, a way of insulting someone's oratory is to say that they, they speak like a street trader. So it's one of the re- one of the reasons that we know that they were, um, you know, probably had a sales patter of the kind we might expect um, is that people say, you know, your oratory is a bit rubbish. It's like a, a street seller. So we tend to be trying to find little incidental references in the background of our literary sources to, to, to get to the lives of these kind of people. It obviously would have been the, you know, the majority of people in Rome, the elites, the ones that we know about and we talk about all the time are a very, very small percentage of people in Rome. So who has come down to us then? In terms of, of hawkers? Of, no, I mean, in terms of um, a famous character in Rome life that sort of coloured in the gaps for us. There's a wonderful, well, he's not a wonderful character, he's an awful character, but there's somebody called um, Ombricius, who again is in one of juvenile satires. And he's a kind of, um, I don't know how to describe him without... Um, yeah, he's a kind of old grump who's just talking about how Rome used to be wonderful. But now it's a kind of the, the, the character you can completely imagine now about how everything was wonderful in his youth. But Rome is now, you know, it's really messy. It's it's full of migrants. It's, you know, it's just not the place it once was. He's, a, he's an awful character in many ways. But um, the kind of story that he gives us of Rome is is quite interesting because there's lots of things that we wouldn't see anywhere else. You know, he talks about all the 
the fortune tellers and the, the dream interpreters that you find in the streets um, and so on. So he's quite, um, let's say, he's not a great character, he's an awful character, but it's quite an interesting one to read. Dream interpreters. Yes. So again, you know, people making a living in the street, you've got you know, fortune tellers, dream interpreters. Um, we hear of snake charmers and sword swallowers. And, you know, all Alina, kind of- you would be a sucker for the dream interpreters. What, why? Why would I be a sucker for a dream? Because you're like a sad romantic, and they clock you a mile off. They'd be like, "Quick, quick, Selena!" <laughs> yeah, I d- look, I don't, I don't care. I'm a romantic. I might be a sado, okay. And I don't know. Probably, yeah, they probably con loads of money out of me. So you might be right there. Speaking of that, I'm guessing beggars everywhere as well. Yes, yeah, we do hear quite a lot about that as well. Um, Typically at places where kind of bottlenecks of traffic. So like the entrances to bridges across the Tiber are somewhere that apparently commonly you find beggars because, you know, people can't walk past you as quickly there. Um, so, you know, they think about where they're going to, to be. Uh, but yeah, beggars do appear quite a lot in, in the background again of our, of our sources. Yeah, it must have been commonplace. Oh, I could just do this all day. I love Rome. Yeah, me too. Hopefully I get to go back again one day. If we're ever allowed out of the house. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Sorry, I'm a Pompeii person. Don't ostracise me. (laughs) To you. You can go with Sophie. Claire and I will go to um, Rome. (laughs) Have you seen the new new bar they've um, uncovered at Pompeii? No. No, I haven't. I'm desperate to go again because every time I'm I'm out there, they discover something new. So, um, Sophie, hey, if you are listening... You Take better. me with you. No, <laughs> so yeah, we didn't talk about bars actually, but they're a massive part of. Um, Let's talk about bars. My, so my, what's your favourite bar hotspot now? I quite like the complete madness of hanging around Campo de Fiori with all the Indians trying to flog you the flying light things. And I actually bought a singing cat off of one of them for my mum, and she loves it. But I love like sort of the loudness of that area been charged like 10 pounds for a beer yeah like bruno's <laughs> our mascot though <laughs> oh, in the statue <laughs> yeah because he's like the inspiration for assassin's creed isn't he always go hang out with bruno yeah i know they rip you off but i'm just like screw it i love it the market is great in there though yeah so yeah tell us about bars in ancient rome you've mentioned them a couple of times i think that would have been really really important again thinking about people you know not having the I mean, a lot of people would be living in these apartment blocks. They wouldn't necessarily have much in the way of facilities to cook their own food and so on. So they're probably relying um, on neighbourhood bars for a lot of their lot of their meals. Um, if you go to Pompeii, you know, you see the they're quite distinctive. You'll know the the um, the bar counters that you find throughout the city. They're these um, very often they've got marble facing on, um, and they've got these big, what we call dolia, big storage jars embedded in the counter. And they would have held food of various sorts, um, either dried food or, or hot food. I mean, the one that's been uncovered recently, they found, um, so this is in, they're doing new excavations at the moment in, in Reggio 5 at Pompeii, and they found a new bar um, maybe a month or two ago. Well, they released the, the information about it a month or two ago, and that had um, bone fragments of animals in there. So I think, you know, we, we can imagine that meat was sold in these places. And probably, you know, if you don't have um, much money and you don't have much in the way of cooking facilities, this is the kind of place where you would get, um, you would get meat and so on. You get sausages and, and that kind of thing, stews being sold. 
Um, so yeah, they're found throughout the city. And I think if you're living somewhere like Rome, Rome, ancient Rome is a city of neighbourhoods, just like it is now. Um, so you would be relying very heavily on your local neighbourhood bar for, for food and drink. Um, yeah, they sell wine as well and olive oil and so on. I like the sound of that. Can we go back in time? Do you know, I know this is going to sound so bad, but I was going to say Alina loves a good sausage. But you actually, you really are a fan of sausages, not being smutty or disgusting in the slightest. You love a good sausage and you're always moaning about not having your British sausage out in Poland. So Agreed. I, I Agreed. thought of you and I didn't want to just throw that in there because it's <laughs> just typical history hack smut. No, I do miss a good British sausage. Um, Polish ones, they're good, but you can't miss, you can't, you just can't compare. I'm really sorry, Poland, Polish people don't start hating me. Well, we've decided that the problem is that Polish sausages actually have meat in them. (laughs) You just want like the typical eyelid, eyeball, (laughs) piece of filth Um, Richmond sausage, don't you? Balls. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, listen, Claire, thank you so much for joining us. That has been absolutely Thank you for having me. Oh, it's been brilliant. Come back anytime to talk more about ancient Rome. I just, I want to get on a plane now. Yeah. Don't do it. I can't. They won't let us in. We're pariahs everywhere. Because well, it's okay. Medway. If you come to Poland, apparently the flights are opening up next week. Come to Poland, you go to Rome from there. We <laughs> just sneak over land. <laughs> <laughs> oh, probably shouldn't have announced the plan live on air. But Claire, thank you so much. Thank you. Join us tomorrow when. Jonathan Clements will be with us to talk all about his brand new book, which looks at the history of China in 12 meals. Obviously, Alina prepped this one and didn't care about the history of China. She cared about the history of Chinese food, which is great because Jonathan's family are sick of hearing him talk about it. So they got on like a house on fire. Don't miss this one. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join... There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.